When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in May 2019. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson and our guest, Dr. Marie Mora. Dr. Mora is an expert on the intersection of labor and race within the economy. She received her bachelor's and master's from the University of New Mexico and her PhD from Texas A&M University, all in economics. She has vast teaching experience working as a professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, the University of Texas-Rio Grande Valley, and New Mexico State University, while currently serving as provost ad interim and professor of economics at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. She has shared her research with world-renowned institutions such as the Federal Reserve and the Department of Labor. Dr. Mora has written over 50 articles in journals such as International Migration Review, Industrial Relations, and Social Science Quarterly. In addition to her journals, she has written many books such as Hispanic Entrepreneurs in 2000s and Socioeconomic Outcomes of Island and Mainland Puerto Ricans, and many more. Dr. Mora is quite the academic, and to cover all of her accomplishments would probably take up the remainder of this episode. We were lucky enough to talk with Dr. Mora about why Puerto Rico is excluded from development within the U.S., how land plays a role within Puerto Rican politics, and what explains the inequality between Latin Americans and the average American. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Professor Mora, welcome to Smart Talk. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that. Glad that you made the time to be with us. Now, one of the most important points you make is that Puerto Rico was encountering an economic crisis, even a humanitarian crisis, long before the damage caused by Hurricane Maria. So a good place to begin our conversation then might be to ask you to expand on the causes for these problems. Yes, actually, that's a very excellent question. And and again, I really appreciate uh, coming on to your show. Um, As you mentioned uh, in your question, uh, Puerto Rico has indeed been undergoing a severe economic crisis long before Hurricane Maria struck. Um, In the book that I have with my co-authors, Alberto Davila and Avidan Rodriguez, uh, we examine a lot of the consequences and some of the outcomes and implications about Puerto Rico's crisis that has been surging since 2006. Um, Puerto Rico certainly made the news with Hurricane Maria striking, but it's important to note that the island has been in a severe economic crisis since the year 2006. Since that year, only one time or only one year has Puerto Rico had positive economic growth, and that was back in 2012. Um, When uh, my co-authors and I had started working on this project about Puerto Rico about six years ago, and the more we dug into the data, the more questions that, uh, that came up, and we realized something very big was happening uh, that was much bigger than what was being captured in the news. 
as a result, uh, we went from what we had planned to be just a book chapter to an entire book and several manuscripts uh, in terms of what the economic conditions were. Uh, when we received our galley proofs for the book, uh, we literally got them two days after Hurricane Maria struck. And at that time, we begged our publisher to please let us ha at least have an addendum. Uh, usually publishers don't like it when you make major changes or structural changes to a volume. And we were fortunate they gave us three paragraphs. Now they're long paragraphs, but we, we talk a little bit about how we can use our book thinking about uh, ways to help Puerto Rico adjust in terms of moving forward. Um, we had thought at the time that this, just because of the severity of the, the storm, uh, in terms of being a very massive, powerful, uh, destructive storm, uh, that Puerto Rico would have certain issues and challenges. But this is on top of the island's economy having been crippled again for more than a decade. And so that uh, we, in terms of some of the causes of what was happening, um, Puerto Rico's had a very long, uh, complicated relationship with the U.S. mainland. And what we saw happening in 2006, it was kind of like a lot of things imploded, a lot of uh, different events came together. So in our book, we talk about 2006 as being the year of the perfect storm. Um, that was the year that there were uh, tax credits that were given to corporations that were operating on Puerto Rico. Uh, they had been in place since 1976. In the year 1996, it was announced there would be a 10-year phase-out period so that by 2006, they would be completely expired. Um, as a result, uh, businesses in anticipation of losing these tax credits, some left the island, uh, many scaled back. Uh, as a result, um, employment fell. And so if you have a loss of employment, then you have a loss of bank deposits. In addition, if you have a loss of employment, you have a loss of tax revenue collected by the government. Right. So the government itself uh, faced uh, um, some, you know, some budgetary issues. So in 2006, there was a lot of political wrangling. The government shut down for a little while in terms of trying to get a hold of the budgetary issues. Um, one of the outcomes of that was the imposition of a sales tax uh, at the time was 7%. Uh, and uh, this was coming out of a 0% tax um, on the island. Um, since then, I mean, 7% actually sounds relatively low because in 2015, that sales tax was raised to 11.5%, uh, which is higher than any U.S. state has. Um, and is, uh, in addition, uh, once you lose bank deposits, then you also lose your source of capital. So it essentially led to this domino effect. Um, with the loss of jobs, it also led to massive outmigration of the island. In many respects, the story you tell could be applied to almost any industrial city in the United States and regions. You know, Puerto Rico has its own long history. And of course, as someone who's been teaching political economy using Henry George as my um, um, you know, basis for understanding of how economies work, the one question I would look at and ask you if you have any insight into is the history of land ownership and resource ownership on the island and how concentrated it is currently, uh, particularly absentee land, uh, land ownership would seem to be a major factor as it is in many countries. And is that the same for Puerto Rico? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, one of the reasons why the tax credits were put into place for the U.S. corporations was that over, uh, over decades, uh, the U.S. government was trying to find ways to shift um, Puerto Rico's economy away from land and more into manufacturing and, and production. Um, that is okay in the sense of, you know, the businesses had incentives to be there, but when you take away those incentives, uh, then the island is lost. It has been left without a major source of uh, sustainable jobs. Right. Um, in addition, in our book, we talk about some of the percentage of, of land that has went from basically going from the agrarian uh, 
society or agrarian uh, economy, uh, much more to a manufacturing one. Uh, but again, with the businesses that have been scaling back and shutting down, that has, has left the island in a very weakened economic state. One of the uh, economists who seems to have done uh, the most work in recent years on this whole issue of rent-seeking uh, is Joseph Stiglitz. And I wondered, I, you know, I've read a report that he did uh, in 2010 after the financial crisis, and and a lot of what his team of, of investigators talked about was the fact that there's so much uh, in the way of of um, subsidy and privilege in law in in the United States, and I would assume Puerto Rico, that really benefits rent seeking over the actual production of goods and services. Does your research bear out that people are rewarded not for producing goods and services in Puerto Rico, but for taking advantage of the various uh, loopholes in tax policy and subsidies and public policy and that kind of thing? Um, there seems to be evidence of that, yes. Uh, and again, uh, the concern is uh, thinking about moving forward uh, with respect to the island, if the incentives are, are misaligned, um, I know that there's a big concern, a lot of anecdotal evidence that with the rebuilding, uh, the question is who is going to be owning uh, the, you know, the rights uh, to all the, you know, the businesses moving in. And it, it so far does not appear to be uh, in the hands of the Puerto Rican people. From, from what I understand in terms of the residential uh, development on the island, quite a, uh, I, I suppose it would be this Puerto Rico suffers from the same problem of secure title and legal title to land that many parts of uh, Central and South America have suffered and that Hernando de Soto has written about extensively. Um, I know from my own professional experience working at Fannie Mae, uh, Puerto Rico was part of my territory and we worked with the, the mortgage lending community in Puerto Rico to try to increase the volume of business coming out of the island to help people uh, acquire residential property. But in many cases, particularly in the rural areas, this problem of title insurance and clear, getting clear title to land was an extremely difficult problem to overcome legally. Um, do you see this as a major issue that has to be addressed before Puerto Rico can rebound from the hurricane and from some of these other issues that you've talked about? Right. Actually, that's a very important issue, um, especially as the island begins rebuilding. If there's a question about who owns the land, uh, that might leave some vulnerable populations uh, even more vulnerable and susceptible uh, to outside, uh, outside interests uh, moving in. Uh, probably a larger question, as I've read through the material that you provided to me, was whether or not the issue of remaining a territory, becoming a state, or seeking independence is a resolved issue for people in Puerto Rico. And the reason I, I bring that up is because it seems that one advantage Puerto Rico has had as a territory is labor mobility, that when employment is problematic in, on the island, people can simply you know, leave and come to the mainland, to the United States, and once they obtain employment, can begin to send revenue back you know, to the island, to their families. So I wonder if, if you've, you have a sense of what the sentiment is in Puerto Rico with regards to its legal status, uh, again, you know, with the United States. 
Right, that's also a very good question. Um, it's and it's one that's not easy to answer, and it's been many decades uh, in uh, under play. Um, there was a vote last year uh, that was a non-binding vote in terms of whether or not uh, Puerto Rico wanted to adopt statehood. Uh, that did pass overwhelmingly. I can't recall what the percentage was. However, some of the opposing political parties chose to boycott that election. Uh, so the results of the election were put into question, or not the election, but the, the results of that vote were put into question because there was a significant number of people who chose not to vote uh, in, in protest of, of having that. Um, that is certainly going to be one of the issues uh, to consider moving forward. Uh, you're absolutely right in terms of migration costs. Basically, it's just the cost of a plane ticket uh, for Puerto Ricans to move to the island when uh, things uh, when employment is weak uh, on the island. Um, and again, we've been seeing that since 2006. There's been massive net out migration um, from the island to the mainland. Um, one of the problems that that has created is that the population itself is shrinking. Uh, in addition, it's rapidly aging. So mm -hmm. if you think about who is going to be moving, well, they're going to be the younger workers and also those who are in their childbearing years. Uh, so you, what is left behind is a population that is older, but also one that is not having children. So we don't have the population replenishment. Um, the population itself has fallen, um, uh, and in terms of the out-migration, has been the second highest in terms of a relative sense, relative to the size of the population. The largest one was during the period of the Great Migration of the 1950s, uh, but in terms of absolute numbers, it's the largest scale uh, that, that we've seen from the island. And this is, by the way, before Hurricane Maria. Um, since Hurricane Maria, the out-migration has continued, and so a lot of the trends we saw with out-migration um, have been expedited by Maria. So at this point, I would anticipate uh, when the numbers, uh, more numbers come out, that this, this both the relative and absolute scale of net out-migration uh, will exceed the period of the Great Migration, at least match it. Uh, before I'm, I, I would like to really get, engage you in some discussion of your more broad uh, data on income and wealth distribution among Hispanics generally. But before getting into that, um, what is your sense of how Puerto Rico will fare in raising the revenue necessary to rebuild its infrastructure, the the, the electric grid and that kind of thing? Um, is, is the prospects of of uh, obtaining this kind of funding from the United States uh, promising, or do you think under the Trump administration that this is less likely to occur than if we might have a different administration in Washington? Right, and that's a very good question as well. Um, it does appear from a lot of the indications that the Trump administration has not been very friendly toward Puerto Rico. Um, it's an issue again, because the island was already in such a weakened economic state uh, that when the hurricane struck, uh, the island lacks currently both the traditional policy tools we would think about. Um, being a territory of the United States, Puerto Rico does not have monetary policy. So thinking about currency devaluations is not an option because, again, monetary policy is uh, in the hands of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, but even under fiscal policy, the government's hands are tied. And that had to do with the legislation that, the, uh, that Congress passed and uh, was signed into law by President Obama uh, regarding the PROMESA legislation. Uh, so in terms of helping the island deal with its debt uh, that, it, that already existed before Hurricane Maria struck, um, it is up to this oversight board uh, that has the final approval in terms of what Puerto Rico does with its, its budgetary authority. Um, a lot of criticism about the oversight board is that uh, the provisions in PROMESA give it the charge to help Puerto Rico deal with its debt, uh, but there's no accountability to the Puerto Rican people uh, nor the Puerto Rican government um, in terms of uh, 
thinking about policies that will ease the suffering on the island. Uh, in addition, uh, the again, the oversight board has final approval uh, and uh, has no accountability to the Puerto Rican government either. Do you have any sense of what the revenue return is from Puerto Ricans living in the mainland back to the island? What kind of dollar that that, that produces every year to add to uh, you know, individual household income? We would love to have that information. And we've been asked this before when we've given different presentations. Uh, it's just very difficult to get that type of data. Um, one of the reasons is because it is a territory, the type of, it's not really, the international transactions are, are not uh, easy to keep track of. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't have that type of data. Well, uh, moving to, to a broader discussion of the state of, of Hispanics in the United States generally, I looked at some of the data that you um, you know, provided to me. And it's interesting to see the distribution of household income and individual income based on uh, the origin of Hispanics. That I mean, not all Hispanics are equal. And so I wonder um, what your sense is of the reasons for that disparity in, in one of the key one of the things I looked at all, always is the rate of home ownership. And so the rate of home ownership for Hispanics in the United States is roughly about 55 percent uh, uh, higher than for African-Americans, but much lower than for whites generally. But within that distribution of, of people described as Hispanic, the rate of home ownership is quite different. And I wondered, you know, to what uh can you point to causes you specifically see and public policies that have impacted that outcome? Yes, yes that's also a very good question. Uh, one of the, my areas of research, um, I do focus a lot on the, the socioeconomic outcomes of Hispanic populations. And I think it's important for a lot of the general public to understand that the Hispanic population is quite heterogeneous. Um, a lot of our statistics that we hear about, it's like well, his, like Hispanic home ownership or Hispanic earnings, Hispanic unemployment. Um, but we have a lot of different groups that go into and, and comprise the Hispanic population. Uh, so in terms of our uh, largest Hispanic groups, Mexican-Americans account for almost two-thirds of Hispanics. So a lot of the trends we hear with respect to Hispanic socioeconomic outcomes are reflecting what's happening with Mexican-Americans in particular mm -hmm. because they're the largest group. Uh, the second largest group uh, on the mainland is Puerto Ricans, and then the third largest Cubans. Um, and the, uh, the groups themselves are quite different. The geographic distributions differ as well. Uh, so in certain states, uh, for example, in Florida, Cubans are the largest Hispanic group. But if you take out Miami, the Puerto Ricans are the, the largest Hispanic group. Um, some of the differences that we've observed, and again, going back to uh, some of the my, my co-authors and I have observed, um, relate to uh, background of individuals. Uh, for example, educational attainment uh, plays a big role. Um, it's not the only explanatory factor, but it does play a role in terms of, you consider labor education enhances your job opportunities and labor market earnings, and then your job opportunities and labor market earnings in turn affect home ownership uh, and having uh, that uh, that type of uh, that type of wealth accumulation. Um, in, addition, in addition, if people are less likely to own a home or if they're earning less, uh, this does have intergenerational effects. So we can consider the, the children of individuals growing up in you know, poorer neighborhoods or poorer households versus the wealthier ones. Um, traditionally, Cubans, uh, Cuban Americans have uh, had higher earnings. And if you look at the numbers, they tend to have higher home ownership rates than, uh, than, other, uh, than other Hispanic groups. Are Hispanic, is the Hispanic population 
aging at the same rate or similar to that of whites in the United States? It's actually a very young population, and uh, the population, it, it's, a, it's a, still a very fast-growing population, particularly when we focus on, on the young, the, the, youthful, uh, the youthful population. And so that actually becomes a concern, too, because in the past several years, there's been a changeover in terms of what is driving the growth in the Hispanic population. Um, the driver in recent years had been immigration, and so you have immigrants uh, coming from other countries, uh, fueling uh, population growth. And so in that case, the issue about differences in education are not quite as much of a concern because individuals are moving here as young adults and um, you know, um, finding jobs, et cetera. But now the driver of Hispanic population growth is the, is the U.S. born. And so why that's a concern is because these are individuals who are going through U.S. schools. I mean, they you know, speak the language are growing up uh, essentially uh, in, in the U.S. and going through a lot of uh, the, the U.S. institutions. And yet we still see uh, pretty persistent education gaps between Hispanics and whites, um, even among the U.S. born. Um, some good news is that educational attainment is increasing among U.S. born Hispanics. Uh, the flip side is that educational attainment is increasing across a lot of different groups. And so these education gaps have been pretty persistent over time. In talking about higher educational opportunities, uh, and I, I should say, one of, uh, I annually produce an update on a state of the U.S. economy and our society. I teach this as a semester-long course, and it's a fairly dismal picture when you when you really get deep into the statistics, as I'm sure that you know you and your your co-authors have have found, and you know one of the interesting statistics that really amazed me was the number of college students who do not are not able to eat regularly because they do not have sufficient income to do so. One out of three uh, students in colleges are classified as food. Um, uh, what's the correct term? Not food deprived. Insecurity. Yeah, the yeah food insecure. And so many college campuses have opened up food pantries. And I would expect that in the minority population, Hispanics included, that that percentage would be even higher, which makes it even more difficult for them to stay in school. Um, you know, has, has your research uh, hinted any any specifics in that area? Um. We have not examined specifically the, the financial security or the, the food security or insecurity among Hispanic college students. Um, I would I would assume, uh, again, based on the data in terms of coming from poor economic backgrounds or socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, that their incidence of food insecurity would be even higher uh, than the, the average the average college student. Yeah, this is just one among a long list of issues we face as a society, and and minorities face those same issues even more intensely, depending upon the location and where they you know where they live if they're urban rural. Um, in general, as you as you've looked at the the challenges facing Hispanics, uh, and you look at public policy issues. What would you describe as maybe the top four or five public policy changes that are needed in order to create a greater equality of opportunity for Hispanics and other minorities in our society? 
Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, one of the things that I would, uh, and I'm something I've been most passionate about is providing opportunities uh, for school because um, I do um, have seen firsthand how powerful education can be in terms of uh, improving socioeconomic mobility. Um, I think it's it's not just access to school, but finding ways to um, help uh, address other issues that students might be facing outside. Uh, for example, like you just mentioned with food insecurity, um, are there ways that we can alleviate pub through public policy um, additional burdens that certain populations might be having coming from uh, poorer backgrounds than others might have? Um, I'm also have been very concerned about the uh, issues related to the quality of education. Uh, so if students are going to public schools, are they getting the same type of, of education? Uh, and if not, then that may also have these longer term effects that uh, that tend to hinder uh, hinder their uh, socioeconomic progress. Um, in some of the work that I've done with one of my co-authors, Alberto Davila, we published a report last year with Economic Policy Institute uh, looking at earnings and some of the other economic outcomes um, across Hispanic groups. We're talking about the you know differences according to you know, Mexican-American versus Puerto Rican etc. And we found we also one of the one of the divisions that we looked at was if you only focus on college graduates, uh, there is still a long term persistent earnings gap between Hispanics and non Hispanic whites. Uh, and that's that is a question because we assume people go to school, they do earn more. Um, and yet Hispanics on average, even when going to college and you know, they have the college degree are still earning less. Um, that is not explained by uh, differences in other observable characteristics. So in that regard, there could be something happening in the labor market. Um, if there's discrimination or um, Hispanics are uh, more likely to be blocked from uh, rising up within a company, uh, then I think in terms of public policy it would be to use some of our anti-discrimination tools that we have. What about the level of entrepreneurship? Uh, do you see, you know, our um, is with with the increase in Hispanics with advanced degrees and with professional training, are are you seeing that Hispanics are are more committed to entrepreneurship and startups, in forming businesses? Is that something that seems to be going in on in the Hispanic uh, segment of the population? Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, Alberto Davila and I also have a, a book on Hispanic entrepreneurs that was published a couple of years ago um, by Stanford University Press. Um, and that's one of the things we examine is looking at Hispanic entrepreneurship, obviously from the title. Um, but what got us interested in that topic is looking at the numbers. Over time, there's been an increase in Hispanic entrepreneurs. Now, on the one hand, it's not that much of a surprise because you have a growing Hispanic population, so you'd expect to have you know, more Hispanics to get more Hispanic business owners. Um, but we found that even if you just look at within the Hispanic population, uh, self-employment rates and entrepreneurial tendencies have been rising. Um, some of that we attribute to the fact that you do have a growing Hispanic population. Um, Hispanics might have a, a competitive advantage with being able to um, find a niche or, or uh, sell, uh, provide goods and services for um you know, for, for Hispanic consumers. Um, we also talk about though that uh, part of the increase might be related to more of a, like a push uh, phenomenon into self-employment. Uh, that is in the absence of robust job opportunities that right. people seek self-employment to, as a mean, you know, to avoid becoming self, becoming unemployed. How about the tech, the tech side of, of, you know, the um, employment are, um, I mean, I, from from what I've read, one of the problems with many of the urban urban schools uh, with with uh, minority populations is the absence of access to the internet and to 
learning how to use, take advantage of, the, of high technology. Do you see that as a significant problem in the public educational system as it, as it exists today? Um, I, I, would, I would say that's a problem. Uh, and the reason is that, as, as we all know, we're living in an age, in fact, look, our interview we're doing uh, using technology, you know, high technology. Right. And so if people, it, it, actually to me, it, it ties into like the quality of, of education, uh, that if people are, are living, you know, a population that is systematically not able to access the same type of um, physical capital resources uh, that other groups have, that that may have longer term consequences uh, in terms of looking at their socioeconomic mobility. Um, the area where I am, so the lower Rio Grande Valley in Texas, actually is one of the largest places, has one of the largest digital divides uh, in the nation. Um, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, San Antonio branch has been very public about, you know, trying to find ways to address the digital divide uh, down here in South Texas. And so some attention is being paid by policymakers. That seems to be catching on a little bit more uh, than it did even five years ago. Um, but I do see that as a long, that could have long-term consequences if we do not begin addressing it now. One of, one of the issues that economists who are sympathetic to Henry George's analysis pay a lot of attention to is how public schools are being funded at the local level versus state and federal funding. And for example, um, Mason Gaffney, who's emeritus from the University of California, has written pretty extensively on this, on this issue, uh, particularly related to the consequences of Proposition 13 in California, which really uh, pulled a great deal of revenue from the public school system and has caused serious decline in the quality of public schools in California. And, and what Mason Gaffney and, and other economists, when they look at the property tax and propose the move to a land-based property tax system, which is right out of Henry George, uh, observe is that, that a lot of money, uh, a lot of wealth uh, is being taken out of communities by absentee owners. And if we had a land-based property tax system uh, that captured as close to the annual potential rental value of land as possible, that revenue would stay local and it would be available for not just schools, but for um, other public infrastructure. And I wonder if you've had any um, experience studying the property tax and its um, uh, application and how that's uh, influence the distribution of income and wealth in various communities. Has that um, been a subject of interest to you? Um, it's of interest to me. Um, it's something that I haven't uh, deeply explored, um, but I think it's an extremely important topic because it does affect uh, the resources that go into public schools. Uh, again, I'm, I'm I am very concerned about. Uh, the, the access uh, to quality of, uh, quality of education, and we need to find ways, I think, through public policy uh, to design uh, effective tax bases to be able to finance uh, those public schools. Some, some years ago, you might appreciate this story, uh, some years ago in Philadelphia, uh, there was a real attempt on the part of a number of elected officials to bring land value taxation to the city of Philadelphia. And, and there were a number of hearings held. And one of the speakers who came was um, uh, a former deputy mayor in New York City named Phil Finkelstein. He had worked in the Lindsay administration as deputy mayor. 
And I'll never forget the comment that he made to city council about what motivates people to invest or disinvest in the community. And he basically said something like this. He said, you know, if if you tax businesses too heavily, they will move. If you tax building owners too heavily, they will disinvest. They will tend to abandon their property. But if you tax land heavily, and he stopped, he said, owners of land can't take their land out of the community. <laughs> they have two decisions to make. If the, if the tax is sufficiently heavy, they can either bring the land that they hold to its highest best use, or they can sell it to someone who will. And to me, you know, that sort of succinctly described, you know, how to best capture these the land values for public goods and services and create job opportunities for people in communities. If we would just really understand the economics of taxation and property taxation in particular. And I thought, you know, Phil, coming down from New York, of course, uh, the Philadelphia civic leaders were not all that interested in hearing what someone from the Big Apple had to say. Um, but it was a powerful statement. And Philadelphia has come close to doing the right thing any number of times. Uh, in, re in most recent years, a city controller, a man named Jonathan Seidel, put together a blueprint to totally revamp the city's financial system. And included in there was a move to a two-rate property tax with a much heavier rate of taxation, taxation imposed on land. Politics has intervened, and despite you know, a lot of evidence that supported this idea, it's never happened. And so we need, those of us who are activists for this idea, we need the support of people like you who've done the hard research, um, who understand the economics of what uh, is involved in creating communities where people can thrive, when there's, there's really, I think today, a major environmental concern about creating cities urban communities where people can live and work and play uh, and not be forced to get into an automobile to commute for two or three hours every day. There's so many of these, these uh, um, serious problems that we have that we need good public policy. And so I encourage, I hope that you will continue to do the research you're doing and add to it by looking more closely at the impact of tax policy has on not just Hispanics, but but the but community urban communities in particular in general, um, I don't expect you to answer that call to arms at this moment. But but uh, are there any other issues that you would like to put forward to our listeners before you know we end our discussion today? Maybe we can do this again as a follow up in a year or two to see how things have progressed in Puerto Rico in particular. Right. No, and I, the point you make about land taxes, I would love to delve more into that um, because often, you know, we hear discussions about, you know, taxing labor, taxing capital. Uh, and I, if we think back to one of the factors that led to this domino effect was the the withdrawal of the uh, the expiration of these tax credits uh, yes. for businesses. Um, it, I would love to consider further in terms of the research what the implications for taxes on land would be. Um, I certainly... Um, Again, going back to the issue of public school, like what is the best way to finance it? Um, I think we've kind of lost as a society 
in, not not everybody, but I think there's this general mood that we forget that education is a public good, uh, and whether or not you have like I don't I don't have kids, but I I do pay property taxes, and I'm I think that's a good thing because it's good for society. Nobody likes paying taxes, but it's there are these benefits that we also get that we we sometimes overlook. Um, I guess one of the other things that I wanted to point out in terms of some of my research, um, when we're looking at the migration patterns of Puerto Ricans, uh, we found that their economic outcomes, the socioeconomic outcomes differ uh, among the new migrants depending on where they live. Um, those going to the more traditional areas such as New York, uh, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts tend to have much higher poverty rates uh, and much less likely to be employed versus those who are going to Florida. And Florida, it turns out, is has been the biggest uh, receiving area of of both pre-Maria migrants as well as post-Maria migrants. Um, those moving to Texas, Texas it turns out is a, a big receiving area of, of migrants from Puerto Rico in recent years. They tend to be pretty well off uh, with respect to education levels and jobs, but part of that is the targeting of companies in Texas, specifically to Puerto Rico, uh, to tap into a bilingual population. Um, but I think that gets a little bit lost too. It's not that you just have the average migrants um, and that you know, they just, um, randomly dispersed across the United States of uh, mainland. I, their characteristics differ uh, according to where they settle. And I'd also like to point out that now Florida has the, an even larger estimate of the number of Puerto Ricans living in the state than New York does. Um, that's how big Florida has become. Let me ask you a clarifying question then. The patterns of out-migration from Puerto Rico to the mainland, they're predominantly directed by job opportunities rather than family relations or some combination of the two? It seems to be a combination of the two. Um, it's difficult to get data on that, but we did... Uh, my co-authors and I did get uh, some data from the Puerto Rico Institute of Statistics, um, some surveys that were conducted in between 2010 and 2012. Um, they're called airport interviews or airport surveys, and these are surveys that the Puerto Rican government has conducted of people who are leaving, they're, they're literally the airport, um, but they ask people why people are leaving and for what purpose. And so uh, in that data set, so it's in the middle of this economic crisis, uh, there's a significant number of people who are saying they're, they're leaving, they're, they're on their flight because they're moving. Right. And so we have information about where they're, like what state they're moving into, and then they ask why. Uh, and so for people moving to Texas, it's predominantly they're moving for work. Um, those who are moving to the traditional receiving areas, uh, particularly as I recall, it was Massachusetts, um, it was more family-related issues. And so that's also affecting, I, I think that that in turn can affect the, the longer-term outcomes um, because if people are moving systematically for different reasons, depending on what location they're going to, um, then the neighborhoods into which they're moving will also need to keep that in mind to help a, you know, a more seamless adjustment as migrants move into the island. Do you anticipate any kind of a reverse migration by retirees, people who have, you know, come to the mainland from Puerto Rico, spend most of their working years working on the mainland in New York or somewhere else, and then become, you know, reach retirement age? Is there any trend that they have decided to move back to Puerto Rico once they have, once they've reached retirement and they have a, re a pension and social security and su sufficient income. I think other thing, yeah, other things the same. I mean, Puerto Rico is certainly a very beautiful place, and um, 
all of the people I've met from Puerto Rico, I mean, it, there's a, a big attachment uh, to the island. And so I think ideally people would want to move back there. The question is whether or not they're going to be adequate resources uh, right. for them. One of the problems with the rapidly aging population is that the island was already medically underserved. And so now you have a population that is increasingly older, which means their medical care needs are going to be even greater. And this is at a time when my, when among the out migrants has also been physicians and doctors. So the number of doctors themselves has been has been declining. And so that's a question if there is a, um, a substantial return migration of of older retirees, then will they have the access to health care resources, medical care that they'll need? Um, I think that that's one of the issues that will will need to be addressed. Um, during the period, again, since 2006, there's been net out migration. There has been some return migration during this time. Um, so it's not that the numbers would look even worse if there hadn't been some people moving back to the island. Um, so Puerto Rico, Florida is the largest receiving state of Puerto Ricans from the island, but it's also one of the largest sending states of people back to the island. Uh, and some of it, some of the this uh, difference in migration or the return migration or the in-migration to the island uh, seems to relate to cases where people may come to the mainland and not find a job, so they return back uh, to the island to, to settle back in. Um, that's always, when we think about these migration patterns between the island and mainland, it's often very difficult to get like the longer-term fix on it because of the fact that migration costs are so low. So many times people move back and forth, and we don't always, we're not going to pick up the population because U.S. citizens by birthright um, we're not documenting like there's not an immigration record for to see I, who's, how many times people are migrating. I've read uh, a couple of different studies by various economists looking at neighbor, uh, labor mobility. And one of the observations they make is, and it seems to make sense to me in a, uh, in a general way, that um, in those areas where the rate of home ownership is low, and individuals, uh, then, and there's a high number of renters, um, that people who are renting have a much easier time leaving their area in search of employment, as opposed to those who have home ownership and must, you know, dispose of a property before they're able to, to move, and particularly if property values have declined and they, they owe more in mortgage debt than the value, uh, they, they're really kind of stuck in, in place. And I, I wonder if, if, um, if that's a valid sort of argument to take and does it benefit uh, those minority populations that have a lower rate of home ownership to some degree or is, is it not really something that um, helps people in other words, this the potential to be more mobile, does it in fact help lower income households uh, versus what I did for a living at Fannie Mae, and that is trying to increase the rate of home ownership for lower income families. I mean, that was considered by all of us as a key to wealth building. Right. It seems like those two things are kind of fighting against each other, wealth building and labor mobility in the event of an unemployment uh, and a recessionary downturn. Right. So I guess part of that question would be if the migration itself is temporary. Um, but 
in terms of the basic theory, you're right. If you're tied to a particular area, you may be less likely to move, uh, even if there's some better opportunities elsewhere uh, because of the, the, the costs associated with, with migration. Um, I know, and I, again, I don't have the specific numbers off the top of my head, but we talk a little bit about in our book, uh, that even, even among homeowners, there has been out-migration uh, to the point some people have abandoned their properties. And that is a concern because that's leading to a surplus of homes. Um, so people who do still own their homes, and if you think about the housing values, have continued to decline. Um, Does this have a geographic concentration? Um, off, I can't think of it offhand. That's, that's the specific geographic concentration we have not explored. Um, I, I would be curious to look at, for example, you know, the, the San Juan metropolitan area versus some of the uh, the outlying or the, in the, the rural areas. But I, I haven't looked specifically at, at the geography of, of homeownership and, and how that's affected region-specific migration. Well, uh, boy, you've given listeners a lot to think about, and uh, I, you know, I can only be very sympathetic with the plight of the people in Puerto Rico and what they're facing and going to face in the you know, immediate future and hope for the hope for the best. What we need is is some real commitment on the part of our civic leaders and, and our public policymakers in order to uh, do the right thing. And so I I hope you'll continue to yeah, agitate for change and for the right kind of public policies. And hopefully the next time we have an opportunity to talk on Smart Talk that, that we'll have some uh, positive news that we can convey uh, about the situation there. So Professor Moore, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I very much appreciated uh, talking with you and I, and I enjoyed it very much. I hope you got something out of it as well. Yes, I did. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to coming back and having some updates, and like you said, hopefully with some better news and more positive uh, outlook. I'll be following your work. All right. Thank you very much. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.